Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Capitalize for Kids podcast. Our guest this week is none other than TSN legend, Michael Landsberg. We had such a fantastic conversation with Michael about his journey to becoming a heavyweight in the Canadian sports broadcasting industry, and more importantly, how he's used that role and influence to destigmatize conversations around mental health with athletes. We also talked about how he continues to champion this cause and push forward conversations outside the realm of athletes through his nonprofit, Sick Not Weak. Here it is. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Um, obviously, your your career has no shortage of, of accolades, but you know today we, we definitely want to get some time to spend on on what you have founded, which is perhaps the most important uh, through Sick Not Weak. Oh, I think my career is definitely short of uh, on accolades, and I'm fully anticipating that you will rectify that over the next couple of minutes. Otherwise, I am so done here. So lay it on, man. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, accolades, to be honest with you, uh, accolades and awards and acknowledgments never meant anything to me at all until I got into the mental health space. And then I, I find that there is a purpose for them. Uh, because it gives you a certain measure of profile. Uh, it makes your platform a little bit wider. Uh, and that's a really, really good thing. But one of the things I have developed as uh, being a guy who I would say for the most part during my career have been very polarizing. Uh, people either like me or don't like me. I have learned not to really care about things like awards or accolades or, or, um, or on the opposite side. I've learned to not care whether, whether people dislike me uh, because I know who I am. I've always known that. And uh, the goal in broadcasting is not to make friends with your audience, but to have an audience. So, um, so I'm happy with where I am. And speaking of knowing, knowing who you are, you started at, at Forest Hill Collegiate. How well did you know yourself at Forest Hill? Oh, I, the person that I knew at Forest Hill was not the person that I know now. Totally changed. Uh, I, I mean, an about face to the point where if you ask people that I went to high school with, if you said, hey, which person out of these hundred, let's say these hundred guys, which one is going to go into talking on television, talking on radio, doing public speaking? Which one? Uh, I mean, they would have probably gone through 90 people before they got to me. Uh, I was not a likely candidate to be doing this. Uh, I would never have imagined myself on stage talking uh, as I do. I could never have imagined myself doing television. And the biggest reason why was, I, I think, lack of confidence uh, at that point. Uh, but it certainly wasn't lack of desire because the only thing I ever really wanted to do was talk about sports in my life. And I just never thought you could do it. And I was, uh, I was shy. I had insecurities. I had anxieties. I was a totally different person uh, in high school, as you're making reference to Forest Hill. I, I was the quiet guy in the corner. So what was the path then from Forest Hill to TSN? My, my best break was, uh, and, and I got a number of breaks. Let's, let's say I got um, three big breaks in my career. Number one was failing out of the University of Toronto. That was a huge break because, as weird as this sounds, it forced me to chase what I wanted. I don't think I would have necessarily gone in that route had I had other options, but I had no other options. There was, there was nothing professional that was waiting for me. There was no professional school that was waiting for me. You know, medical schools and dental schools and law schools and chiropractic college and as low down as you want to go on the medical front, they did not want me. And I came from a background where almost everybody actually had gone into some sort of profession. So what really worked in my favor was the fact that uh, I couldn't do that. And then I found out like definitively that, you know, I was done at the U of T and that that gave me the impetus uh, to go forward in broadcasting. I went to U of T radio in my third year when I knew I was going to fail out, I walked in and that changed my life. And it was like, oh, my God, uh, there's something on this planet for me. This was like the first time that I felt like engaged by life. The first time that I felt like, you know, there is a path for me to take. And all of a sudden, like 30 seconds into that first broadcast I did at U of T radio, I was, 
I, I was driven to get better at it, to make my living from it. And from that moment on, I had only really one focus in mind when it came to uh, when it came to that aspect of my life. And that was become a broadcaster. And I also knew that to become a broadcaster, you had to get better, that everyone is terrible at the beginning. Much like playing a musical instrument, you get better every time you do it. And my my humility, my understanding that oh my God, I'm pretty terrible at this, was one of the biggest advantages I had. So that was a big break. Uh, I got a big break when I, uh, when I got a job when I was in school at News Talk 1010. Uh, back then it was called CFRB uh, on the radio. It was so I was working. And when you have a job, it's always easier to get a job. When I graduated, I got a job at CHFI Radio in Toronto. And then TSN started and I was so ready for this opportunity, even though I never worked in television before. I had practiced day after day after day. I had done everything imaginable to get some kind of experience. So when I convinced them to give me an audition at TSN, uh, they said, well, why should we give you an audition? Like, you know, there's plenty of people who've done this job before. And I remember this conversation because it changed my life. And I said, you know, don't assume because someone hasn't done something, they can't do something. So give me a shot. If I if I suck, then, you know, boot my ass out of there and never talk to me again. So I guess I guess I didn't suck. And so was it driven by the, the role at TSM? Was that driven by a passion for sports? It's um, an opportunity. Yeah. You know, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, especially at that point, it was uh, it was a confluence of two things. First of all, one of my goals in this interview is to use the word confluence because it makes me sound really smart. Uh, second of all, it was it was two things. Uh, obviously, love of sports, interest of sports. That's where my that's where my expertise was. Right. It's really at that point the only thing in life that I knew was sports. And then uh, combined with that, an even stronger love for performing, for being on camera, for being on microphone, for being on stage. So I had the thing I wanted to talk about, and I had the delivery method, which I wanted to be me and my voice and my face. And together that gave me this, uh, this incredible passion for this and my willingness to do anything to, uh, to get there. What's been the biggest shift in your perspective of athletes in 23 years of interviewing them? You know, that's a, that's a pretty wide question. I, I, you know, I'll just sort of riff off the top of my head. Uh, hockey players remain really boring. Uh, they remain programmed not to say anything, and it's incredibly frustrating to do that. That's one of the reasons why sometimes people burn out in this job that I do is not so much the burnout factor of I'm working too hard. It's like you get bored with boring people and you get bored with people who don't want to say anything. And especially in Canada, we're a very non-confrontational nation. And when I would confront people on off the record, especially, uh, I would I would get like hate mail, whether it was mail or hate emails or hate texts or hate tweets, you know, like, how dare you treat that person that way? And it was like, well, no, I wasn't being rude at all. But, you know, if someone's not giving you an answer as the interviewer who represents the viewer at home, it's my job to push them harder. So I guess what has changed, um, you know, I, I think that uh, social media has lessened the impact, I think, of, of traditional media, because if you're an athlete and you want to communicate something, you can communicate via social media with nobody asking you questions. You get to write anything you want. If you want to put out a tweet, if you're, if you're playing in the NHL, you can get your point across with no one challenging it. You are much more free to say what you want. For the most part, though, athletes are, are still athletes. Their, their, their job generally is to try not to say anything. And your job generally is to try to get them to say something. But you've been particularly good at getting to know athletes on a, on a human level, I'd say. You are, obviously you're polarizing in the sense that you get a rise out of a lot of, a lot of athletes, but I've, I've heard stories about you building real special relationships with athletes outside of, of who they are you know, on the ice or, or on, the, on the field. You know, I, I, think, I think my, my greatest asset, and, and certainly uh, in the last, well, certainly since we started Sick Not Week, but doing uh, the show that we created, Isolation Nation, we did 60 shows. And if you were to ask me, you know, the best shows, what made them the best shows? Uh, I would say that from my standpoint, what did I bring to the table? I brought two things to the table. 
Um, number one, uh, a sense of humor, uh, because I, I am a huge believer that if you only talk about mental illness in dry, somber tones, people you know, won't be engaged by it. You'll have the same audience over and over again. So my, my willingness to, to, uh, to at least attempt to change the pace of, of a show was there. But second of all, the biggest thing I had was that, that people trust me, right? Is that, you know, now we're talking about something, you know, really precious to people and uh, they need to trust you when they're talking about their sobriety. When you're talking to someone who, who relapsed three months ago, uh, who was suffering from PTSD. I'm talking about one person in particular. Paramedic Nat is her name. She, uh, she was a paramedic on a, on a murder scene and it forced her into this downward spiral that was just so sad to hear. Uh, she became addicted to prescription drugs and alcohol. And so uh, I've got to know her and we put her on the show. And she was on with five other people that had been sober for different periods of time. One was a pretty famous comedian from the States who had been sober for 32 years and she was sober for three months. And in between were three hockey players and another comedian. And they all opened up and shared things that they wouldn't normally share because they knew that they were in safe hands with me. Uh, and they knew that at least in part because they know I'm one of them, even though I've never had an addiction problem. You know, the real, the real power that I have is to talk about my own illness and make people realize that, hey, me too. And if I'm willing to share, people are more willing to share. And when did that happen? Because that's going to be a tough thing to come to realize as, as an interviewer, where you're wearing a mask, you want to be in a, in a certain persona to, to get what you want out of the, the other person. How do you make that shift to offering vulnerability to get your whoever to speak about it? I think that's actually way easier for me than, uh, you know, and obviously I, I haven't been anyone else. I've never lived in anyone else's head, but that transition for me is, is, is natural and easy. Uh, the thing is that the way I'm wired, I never hesitated to talk and use the platforms I had to talk about mental health. That one day, it was in 2009, I was interviewing uh, a hockey player and he had suffered from depression in the 90s. And um, I thought it'd be an interesting question to ask him, how he's doing. And um, I'd never spoken about it before, but he wouldn't talk about it until I said, well, I'll talk about it. And he said, you, and I explained him a bit about me. We went on the air and that changed my life. I mean, you would never, you would never, you wouldn't have had no interest in interviewing me if not for that day in 2009. And I just talked about it like without any hesitation. I had never spoken about it before because I thought no one would care. Uh, who knew that there was a stigma? Like everybody knew there was a stigma, apparently, except for me, because I thought there's no value in that. Otherwise, I would have done it, you know, 10 years earlier. I just uh, I just found out that there's something incredibly empowering for people to hear uh, others speak about their mental illness. And here here's the key. You have to speak about it with strength. You have to speak about it in a way that basically says from your tone, from your body language and from the words you say, it has to be this. Look, I suffer from an illness called depression and, you know, it's severe at times. And, you know, I'm on medication and will be on the rest of my life. But I'm not ashamed about that. I'm not embarrassed about that. And if you think I'm weak. Come talk to me about it because I'll prove to you that I'm not weak. It's that kind of tone that empowers other people to go, well, I heard him talking about it. And wow, he, he, he sounded like he wasn't a loser. He sounded like he wasn't weak. He sounded like he has still been able to go on with his life, even with the illness. That's what I learned. Uh, well, that's what I have learned over the last 11 years. And in particular, probably even more so over the last four or five years. Speaking with that power and, and, and ownership of it, I think is really important. Did you was that the intended message when you started it out eleven years ago? And and when and, and how is it? How did you come to that um, two second week? By chance, uh, in two thousand and eight, I had my uh, the worst year of my life, depression wise. I, there's no point in me trying to describe how much pain I was in because words do not convey pain. You know, you can convey physical pain to people. You can say, oh, my God, you know, I needed to see a dentist and I had an abscessed tooth. And, you, and people would relate to that and go, yeah, I understand that. 
But when it comes to pain from depression, it's very difficult to put it into words. So I, I was coming off my, the worst year of my life for sure. And just by coincidence, Stefan Riche walks in and by coincidence, just before I left my desk to go to the green room and interview and, or talk to him, I read that he had suffered from depression in the 1990s. I mean, just by coincidence. So when I got to the green room, I said, hey, Stefan, can you come outside? And these are the words I used. I said, look, Stefan, you don't know me. You don't owe me anything. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you about depression, because I think uh, people that are fans of yours would like to find out, you know, is it true? Did you suffer from depression? And if so, how are you doing now? And he said, uh, it's very painful for me. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I'm glad that I asked you in advance. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. How about that? And he said, you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, tell me about you. So I told him a bit about me. And he said, oh, yeah, let's do it. Changed the course of my life by 180 degrees and changed the course of his life as well and gave life to at least one person who was watching, who was in the process of taking his own life. That changed my life. We are talking today because of that conversation that he and I had, which was only by chance. And then how did we come upon Sick Note Week? I was giving a speech and I challenged people to challenge me. I was at, at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital. It was in a, uh, it was in a room where they had lectures and it was, uh, I don't remember what the event was. I think it was like young community leaders putting on an event where they brought in guest speakers. And I said, look, you know, this room's filled with 200 people and nobody here is willing to talk about the stigma because you all say you're not part of the stigma, but we all know that more than half of Canadians still believe that mental illness is a weakness. So where the hell are you people? I said, someone just be honest. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be offended by it as much. Matter of fact, I, I want to hear it because that's how you change people's minds. When they hear a discussion, when they hear both sides, then they can formulate their own opinion. So some guy put up his hand and said, yeah, you know what? I, I don't think that you're sick the same way that we were at Mount Sinai, the same way that, you know, all kinds of people in this building are sick. You know, I think that you, you for sure have something that's crappy, but it's not really a sickness because you can you can help it. You just, you know, you can. And I said, great. Thank you so much for saying that, um, because I'm going to tell you now. And I went through sort of my beliefs about it. And I said, so here's the deal, dude. Thanks for doing this. And he, just remember, I'm sick. But I'm not weak. And I don't know how we got from that speech to having it sort of become my go to phrase. But that was the the creation of it. And uh, it kind of just stuck. And, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's like if you name your charity something that's a statement, I think it's, you know, it's more effective than if you just gave it a name. Like if you said, you know, the uh, Landsberg Family Mental Health Foundation, that doesn't tell you anything. Uh, but Sick Not Weak does. As a matter of fact, if I went out on stage to give a speech to, and this would be obviously kind of lame to do this, but if I got out there, Evan, and said, hey, you know what? Sick Not Weak. That's me. Mental illness. Sick Not Weak. Mental illness, a sickness, not a weakness. Sick Not Weak. That's my statement to you. Sick Not Weak. That is my argument that mental illness has to be taken seriously. And then I left the stage at least I, I would have provided them with a perspective. So it's, uh, I think it's still the most important statement that, uh, that we can make. And it sounds like it took a, a confluence of events to get there from nice. Stefan to... Nice. You know what? See, here's what's pissing me off about you, is that here I use confluence because I want to sound really smart, and you got to use it again. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll steal some of that. Well, you know what? For you, it's a confluence of asshole meets jerk. And when they when they meet together, all of a sudden you get Evan, who uh, who needs to show up as guest. It's it's unfortunate that you're not the first one to tell me that, Michael. No, but you know this week, <laughs> here, here's the thing, Evan. That and this is this is what I, I realize a lot is that, uh, and I realize this a lot about me. I mean, I'm a guy who, uh, as you can tell challenge everything that comes out of your mouth. My daughter is exactly the same way. We hear every syllable, every sound, uh, and I'll challenge you on it. And, you know, that that can be annoying for sure. Uh, but you never challenge people. 
You never say things to people if you don't think they can handle it, right? You know, if you think, oh my God, because I don't want to be mean. I just like sort of, I, I like the sparring. And if you spar with someone, it's kind of a compliment that you're giving them by saying, hey, you know, I think you're not only up for the task, but maybe, you know, you can beat me at this task. And you've also had a, a, a lot of experience, obviously, learning those boundaries. Uh, have yes. you Have you crossed them? Do you need to cross the line sometimes to know where the line is? I would imagine. Yes, I, I, I um, fortunately, through a lot of my years at uh, doing off the record, I had employers in the key positions at TSN who understood that, uh, who understood when I crossed the line that it's it's expected, right? If you want people to do something that's new and fresh and has an edge to it, you can't say to them, uh, you know, why don't you push the boundaries on this show? Why don't, you, why don't you, you know, do something that that, you know, be aggressive if that's what it takes, whatever it takes. Do something that's fresh and new and is close to the line, but never cross the line. I mean, that, that would be ridiculous. Right. So I was I always felt supported when, you know, on the handful of times when when I when I crossed into an area where um, where they took heat for something I said they always said to me, this is not your problem. And that's awesome, right? Because typically, you know, management in different, in different businesses um, will look for a scapegoat. So instead of me taking the blame, they took the blame saying, hey, it works for us or whatever. So it, it was good. And, you know, you get pretty good at knowing where the line is. One of the toughest things for me when, um, when we started Sick Not Week and in particular, when uh, when the pandemic hit and we wanted to do a show, uh, and we got um, we got some sponsors um, to allow us to do what we wanted to do, which, like for me, is the dream. I, you know, in doing this, we've never had money. You know, everything has been sort of okay. Let's shoot it on a phone. Um, you know, I'm going to be the host, so no one's going to. You know, I don't take money from the charity, so we can do things on the cheap. But now, all of a sudden, we had some money. And I remember having meetings early on with people that we were looking and hoping that would help us. I said, I need help in seeing outside the box because I've lived in the box in broadcasting in this country all my life. So I, I can talk about how expanded boundaries are great, but I don't know what it's like to create stuff outside the box because I'm so programmed to do things that would comply with um, with what my bosses would have wanted. Well, I don't have a boss now, right? But still, it's I find it frustrating because I still impose boundaries on myself, not consciously, but subconsciously. So that was, uh, th that's been a, a real joy for me, this learning process that we can do things that you wouldn't normally do in broadcasting uh, because- And this was through through Sick Not Week during the pandemic. This yes. is what you were looking to build with, with isolation nation. Exactly. Exactly. Every day it was like, okay, well, why am I, why am I being so conventional? You know, you, you can do things. It's, it's, there's something, Evan, really cool about not having a boss, not having anybody who, who you go, oh God, I hope he wasn't watching or she wasn't watching. So that's a really cool experience for me. And it was, a, it has been a really cool experience. And now I have ideas of things that I want to do. The way my brain works is that challenging my brain to create something is exercise for my brain. And the more I do it, the stronger I get. Now, th there's, th there's no arrogance in this. This is not me saying I'm doing great things. This is me saying I'm doing things that I want to do, that I believe can be do, uh, that I believe can be really good. But that doesn't mean they are. I mean, that's about execution, right? So I, I think it's true with a, with most people is that the more you do, the better you get at it. And and for sure, for writing, I just wrote a forward for a book uh, that will be released, I guess, in uh, in a couple of months. Uh, it was by a former NHL hockey player who was a fighter who was thrown out of the NHL for for drugs and alcohol. And they asked me he asked me to write the forward for him. And I would say they said two to three thousand words. I would say that I wrote probably 15,000 words um, because I kept changing it because I would write something and then I would realize, hey, I can write it better now because I've just written it once. And now my my brain is is kind of is it's stretched out. Right. So I would write it again and then I would go, I can still do it better. And that 
is a huge lesson for me that I need to be at my best. I need to do things many times because I find out I can do them better. But you've got to look at what you do critically. And that's true with anything in, in the creative arts, right? That if you become so enamored with what you do, then I think you lose the best weapon you have, which is, which is humility and self-criticism and the ability to say, can I do better than that? And if, if you just settle for something that, eh, well, it was okay, then you miss out. Shale Sonnen famously on that as well. Great question. There's an update to the story with Shale Sonnen. So the story that you know would be from off the record, right? Where I interviewed him and it went to hell right away. And so the background to that is that um, I, I took spin, spin class at, uh, at a gym in, at St. Clair and Young. Not that the location is particularly important. My daughter and I went there and Vlad was one of the spin teachers. And Vlad was a huge UFC fan. So he used to tell me, you got to get so-and-so on the show. So he said, you got to get Shale Sonnen on the show. Best talker ever. He's going to be unbelievable. And you got to challenge him. He said, like, push him and he'll push back, but he'll be great when he does it. So I said, OK. So I said to him the day before, I said, what should I ask him? And he said, I'll ask him about Anderson Silva. You know, I think he's I think he's a little afraid of Anderson Silva. So, you know, put, put it that way or whatever. So I threw it out there and his reaction was, what? Do you know who you're talking to? And I'm thinking this is this is great because this is just a work, right? Like he's 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 not mad. He's just sparring like we're doing, you know, like 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 guys do before fights. They don't necessarily hate each other, but it makes for good drama. So uh, this went on and he uh, everything I said kind of pissed him off. And by the end, he just said, yeah, I'm out of here. And he took his microphone off and he left. And honestly, Evan, I had no idea was was he pissed or was he playing along and you know he was pissed he was so mad and he explained to me later on because we became friends I sent him an email I think a couple of days later that said hey you know if if I did something to upset you I apologize you were our guest and um, I just I was super aggressive with you because my friends told me that that's when you're at your best and that's what you like the most and then he said to me he said you know you're right um, I, I've been sitting on a positive drug test that no one knows about. So I'm kind of, I'm not in a good space right now. So we became friends, right? And uh, that continued for the next uh, however long uh, until two months ago when he was supposed to be a guest on Isolation Nation. And, um, we, you know, we promoted the hell out of it. And I actually, in a promo, I said, you know, upon further review, I look back, I kind of was a jerk with him. You know, and, and I was. Like, I, I, watched, I, I watched that as I was taking clips from it and playing it. I thought, wow, you know, I kind of was a, a jerk. You know, I'm, I'm uh, as I've said to you before, I'm, I'm self-aware enough to say that. So uh, we say, okay, five o'clock show. This was, I think, our, our one of the first shows that we did, probably the eighth show, something like that. So he says, uh, so I said to him, okay, so um, we do a, a check at 4.30. We were doing Zoom. But we, we dressed it up, we had graphics, and we had a way to, to sick, not weak, assize it, making it look like it was branded us, right? So I said, shows at 5 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, if you could just do a, a check with us at 4.30, that'd be great. And then you can go back on your way and do what you want. And then we'll do the show at 5. So at uh, 4.40, he, uh, he clicks on, which is fine. Because he's still got 20 minutes. And, uh, hey, Chael, how you doing, man? I want to introduce you to uh, Dr. McNeil. She's a psychiatrist in Calgary. You're, uh, you're going to be on the show together. And he goes, oh, really? Tell me about this. And then he goes, guys, you got to give me a TV show to watch. Uh, so I said, Ozark. And he goes, don't tell me Ozark. I just watched it. Tell me something else. So she jumps in. So we're just having fun, right? So I say, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it was like, 13 minutes to five. Why don't, uh, when we start the show at five, why don't you ask the doc the same sorts of questions? Cause this is really good. Guest talking to guests is, is something that I really like. So he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, when we start the show, let's do what we're doing. He goes, well, what we haven't started. I said, no, uh, five o'clock start. He goes, you're kidding. So at this point I'm going, ah, this isn't good. So I say five o'clock start. He goes, so what am I doing here? 
I said, well, you know, I, I told you that we wanted to do a check first and that the show started at five. And as a matter of fact, like I'm, I'm pretty sure that I sent you three emails and my daughter sent your manager three emails that said exactly that. All of a sudden he gets up and leaves. And I'm thinking, OK, he's coming back at five o'clock, right? You know, like he's just like, yeah, he's being a bit of a prima donna, but he's coming back at five o'clock for sure. So five o'clock comes around and it's like, yeah, I don't think he's coming back. And of course, you know, we, we, I know I called him and didn't answer. Casey called his manager, uh, his manager didn't answer. And the next day he posts a video on his uh, YouTube channel. Just ripped me up and down sideways, backwards. He just ripped me and I'm, I, I have no problem getting ripped, but he, I would say at least 80% of what he said was out and out lies. He said, ah, you know, they told me uh, 4.30 or whatever. And like, I, I, I'm reading the email that says, hey, you know, we start the show at five o'clock. If you can come on early and, you know, help us test this thing out, that'd be great. So this, this was like, he kept talking about how, I mean, he's really good at this too, right? He is really good at talking to camera. So he goes, can you imagine the guy invites me on his show and I'm giving him good stuff. And then he tells me all of a sudden we're not on. He goes, what the hell is that? He, he's, I'm not the kind of guy that is going to give you 15 minutes before the show. That is the show. And like, it was so bizarre to see him just laying into me. Are you a believer that, that all press is good press in, in this sort of scenario? Yeah, I was care. You know, I, I didn't care about that. It was just frustrating because I, 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 I knew I couldn't fight back because it's when you have, like in my case on Twitter, say I have a hundred thousand followers. He's got three and a half million. On YouTube, he's got a massive audience. He's chill sudden. You know, I'm some guy, especially like in, in the States, I'm just some guy that, that is a smart ass who's interviewed some UFC people and some wrestlers. So I'm going to lose that fight. And, and especially if you have a fight with someone on social media, then your supporters fight their supporters. Not good for me when he has like, like 50 times the number of supporters I have. So I just, I just kind of ate it. It's like bringing a, a knife to a gunfight. It's like bringing a, a butter knife to yeah, a machine like gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just you know, uh, and I love a good spar, and that—that's the kind of thing that can put you on the map. Um, if you wanted, it, I mean, if, if I was at a different stage in my career, maybe I would have. But you know, I—I I, I took it to heart too. I thought, did you know? Did we do anything wrong? And the answer is no. You know, we, you know. We did exactly what we said we were going to do. And uh, it, in the end, it's just a good story. Exactly. Yeah. If you could say one thing to Chael right now, because I know that he does sometimes listen to the Capitalized for Kids podcast. If you could say one thing to him, what, what would it be? I still love you, man. I know that you acted like a dick. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I'm sorry that you got mad. Love it. And, and, and the pup agrees as well. Yeah. Hey, Riggs. Yeah. Yeah. You keep going, Riggs. You keep going. <laughs> you tell him, Riggs. Oh, my God. My dog is going, Chael, son, and that guy has mistreated my owner several times. So let me let me ask you, uh, Michael, what is you, you mentioned that Isolation Nation, you got ideas of what it looks like next. What does, you know, Isolation Nation 2.0 look like? You know, I, I, I think that we will go to, I don't think I'll do it daily again. I, I don't think I have, uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't think I have it in me to do, um, do a daily show. Like I, I do a radio show every morning and then to do that, I was, I loved it, right? Like I was totally engaged for every second of the day. And because I do a morning radio show, sometimes I take a nap in the afternoon. I never took a nap for 60 weekdays uh, because I was so engaged and so pumped up for this. But I think we'll go to once every two weeks, say maybe, uh, yeah, that'd probably be it. Uh, I think we'll create something that is tailored to young people because we're now facing uh, a, a hugely worrisome time. Why young people? Why young people? You, you know, I, I mean, 
The answer is, uh, is because I, I'm reading so much these days, articles uh, that we circulate amongst us at Sick Night Week that are, are focused on, on kids. The amount of depression and anxiety, the amount of, uh, of abuse of alcohol. I mean, I guess any alcohol that you drink if you're underage is abuse and drugs. And the biggest concern, suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation is, is worse now for, um, for young people than it ever has been. So it's kind of like an acknowledgement that, yeah, you know, this is going to take its toll. It is taking its toll. So I, and the, the idea of, uh, of throwing something out to a targeted audience, as opposed to in general, we've, we've just thrown stuff out there and said, Hey, if this is good for you, then watch it. And that's not the smartest way necessarily to, uh, to program, whether it's your social media, your TV network or your radio station. So I, I think it's, uh, it's the learning process for us. Completely agree. And that's why, you know, Capitalize for Kids, obviously we focus on, on youth mental health. You know, if you, if you can, can give people the tools, uh, to attack and, and, and challenge and handle these problems at an early age, then you're, you're gifting them for life. People who are young more than anyone need to hear people speaking about mental health with strength because they have yet hopefully to formulate, you know, the, the evil thought, which is the stigma, which is, oh my gosh, I can't share this with anyone. They need to see role models of people who they can go, wow, you know, uh, you know, I, I watched that guy play hockey and wow, he's talking about mental illness or that musician or, or just people, you know, their own age group. We need to expose those who are willing to share with strength because it is contagious because sharing mental illness is very much contagious absolutely and you in your seat have a unique perspective given the amount that you speak with athletes and the relationships you've built you said something in your documentary darkness um darkness and hope where you mention that, that the athlete's life kind of peaks in their early 20s. And then it's it's all downhill theoretically from there relative to what they've achieved at an early age. Whereas, you know, the pedestrian will will continue a climb, hopefully a steady climb until their 60s, where they usually reach their 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 goals. I love that. And I thought that was such a, a, a unique angle that I hadn't heard it in, I've never heard before, really. Um, and curious about how you use that in in your approach to mental health as well. Well, I, I think that it, it's obviously the application for me was to talk about mental health amongst professional athletes who have a great deal of success before a certain age, before they're 35, say, and they are then faced with a total change in, in what they do and where they get their self-esteem in what they find to be interesting and challenging and everything that is all taken away. And if you go into the next part of your life with this bar that's placed way up in the air because you've stepped on Scotiabank ice on a Saturday night playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, nothing that you do is ever going to is ever going to give you that same kind of buzz. And if you search the rest of your life for that, you're liable to be disappointed. If you look at your life as not what are you? But what were you? That's not healthy. It's not. I always look at Wayne Gretzky and I think, wow, he looks sad. You know, I, I think he's sad because he, he was Wayne Gretzky, you know, like the greatest player in history. And now he's Wayne Gretzky, who was the greatest player in history. And I think that's incredibly difficult. And the guys that accomplish uh, in the next phase of their life something and feel a sense of satisfaction from that are the ones that focus, make a decision okay, that part of my life is over. I'm not going to lament its loss. I'm going to move on and I'm going to take the same focus, that singular focus to get good at hockey. I'll apply it to something else. 100%. And that can be true of, of that. That analogy can be true to so many things outside of just being, you know, the great one. You could be, you know, the best football player at your high school. You could be, you know, the best dancer at your dance studio, whatever it may be. I, I, I was really both of those. You say that. Yeah. I was the best football player at my high school and the best dancer at my dance club. I think you're still the best dancer at the dance club, Michael. Yeah, you know, I'm just in a different age class now, so it's a little less competitive. But, I, you know, I, I, I think that there's uh, a lesson to be learned from professional athletes, and that is, um, I mean, we all went to high school with people that we thought 
they peaked too soon, man. In high school, that guy, I mean, I have someone in mind, that guy was the guy everyone wanted to be. And then when you saw him 10 years after high school, he was not the guy that anyone wanted to be. And he was like the first guy to say it. He was like, Oh my gosh, you know, high school was so great. And like, he, he was, he was the guy. Uh, and if you peak too soon in your life, you're, you're in a bad way, right? Because you have to live the rest of your life lamenting about what used to be. So if you're conscious of that, I think you can prevent it a lot more than if, uh, if you stay focused on what you used to be. Absolutely. Love that. Now, you know, something that, that you did perhaps most notable, most notably at OTR was a segment called next question. Yes. Fell in love with as a kid watching, didn't miss a single, a single segment. The rules are in case you, you are unfamiliar with them is that I'm going to ask you a series of questions okay. and you have the right, you have the right after any question to say next question, should you not wish to answer? Yeah. You know where that started? It was Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds went, Next question, because it was stupid. Um, so yes, and I'll say it in that condescending way. Exactly. So yeah, fire away. Let's do it. Love it. As a as a sports journalist, what is your favorite sport, Michael? Ah, uh, well, that's that football. CFL. Football. Okay, NFL. Uh, then uh, I, I, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna change that and say NBA. That the Raptors over time built up, built up in my head, and uh, their championship run was the greatest thing I've ever seen. So I'm going with NBA basketball. Where were you uh, at the Kawhi shot? Uh, at the Kawhi shot, I was sitting on my couch just over there, and my daughter was there, and my wife was there, and the ball hit the rim, and we're all like holding our breath. And when the ball went through, I started making these noises that I'm not proud of. It was like, oh, God, where did that come from? And why is that the voice of celebration? I have no idea. But yeah, it was right there. It was so cool. It was like, oh my God, this, we have just witnessed something that you may never see again. This is a once in a lifetime game seven, no time left on the clock and the ball hits the rim four times. Yeah. I have to imagine uh, Riggs was barking. Riggs was, uh, Riggs was young. Riggs was, uh, he's, he's, I guess this would have, that would have been, so he would have been like three, four months. He was probably pretty happy. But not as happy as he would be now. Go scariest interview moments. Uh, scariest interview moments. Uh, you know, I, I would say the fear of challenging somebody in their world, because that's what you do, right? You don't interview people about your own world. You interview Vince McMahon about wrestling. You interview Dana White about UFC. And if you're going to be confrontational and not take answers that you don't believe are acceptable, you got to challenge them. But there's this moment sometimes where you go, oh my God, I'm challenging him. Is he going to come back with something that's going to humiliate me? Like, am I wrong on this? So it's it's those moments, uh, and that's why one of the reasons why I, I watch CNN a lot. I watch a guy like Chris Cuomo at night doing interviews, and I think, wow, he has got guts because he's interviewing people about things in their world, and he's willing to call them out. And if you've never done it before, you wouldn't know how how challenging that is. Who do you owe gratitude for your guts to challenge? Uh, I owe, uh, I think gratitude to, uh, to my parents, uh, and cause I, I was brought up in this loving household where, uh, where I could do no wrong. And, uh, to my wife who, uh, created another loving ho household for me. And I, I've always felt supported. And when you feel supported, even though you don't consciously say it, you don't go, okay, well, I'm going to stay and wait this question because I feel supported. It, it just, it's, it's, for me, it was a swagger that I developed from, from being appreciated by the people around me. Uh, and I, to be honest with you, the rest of it is no idea why, because I'm a confrontational person in real life when it comes to things like political debate or sports debate. But when it comes to actual real life, I'll do anything not to confront people. So it's weird that all of a sudden, you know, I developed this persona on the air, which was to some extent different than my off camera or off microphone persona. How many years have you and your wife been married? My wife and I have been married for, uh, she's standing right beside me. Do you know how many, honey? You don't know? 38. 38, 38 years? Oh my God. Yeah. I knew that. 
Where did you take her on your first date? Uh, we went to a theater downtown. Uh, it was uh, like a uh, like a little theater, and I ordered a gin and tonic, and she ordered. I said, "You know, what do you want to drink?" And I guess she felt obligated to. She ordered a glass of wine, and I remember this because neither one of us drink, right? So it was this expectation of first date. It was Old Angelos. Is that what it was called? It's a place called Old Angelos, and uh, it was it was. Uh, I guess that was the beginning of a lifetime. If CM Punk asks you for uh, for a drink to Old Angelo's, do you take the drink? Uh, I would love to talk to CM Punk, man. Uh, so you, you need to know more about that story. So he's a guest on Off the Record. This part you know, otherwise you wouldn't have brought him up. And he just hates me. And I, you know, I was a bit of a jerk when it came to Chael Sonnen with CM Punk. Every single thing I would stand by. The first question I asked him was, have you ever taken a real punch? Because he was going from WWE to UFC. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you're going from wrestling to UFC. And I'm not insulting you because you wouldn't have, you know, like you wouldn't have taken a real punch in wrestling. Uh, like I understand that wrestling is amongst the most dangerous things you can do, but you don't punch each other. And he was so pissed. He goes, well, you never saw me wrestle? And I said, well, yeah, I saw you wrestle, but those aren't punches, right? You know, those are, those are made to look like punches, but nobody hits each other in the face. So, and it went downhill after that all the way. And I, I you know, unlike the Chael interview, um, I thought that, uh, that I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing. I asked him a question about his wife. Uh, and I said to him, uh, his wife was was a manager I, or wrestler. I'm I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure because I didn't watch. But I said to him, so, so your wife is still with WWE, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, and you're suing WWE, right? Because you had uh, you had an injury that got affected that almost took your life, right? He goes, yeah, that's true. I said, do you find it uncomfortable? You know, or does your wife find it uncomfortable, you know, being at the company that that her husband is suing? And he goes, whoa, like way out of bounds. You can't ask me that. And I was like, well, why not? I'm not asking you uh, about your wife. I'm not asking you details about your marriage. I'm saying your wife is a public person. She is a wrestler. You were a wrestler. You left and you're now suing the company she works for. I'm thinking that would be tough. And and. That didn't go over well as well. So what you need to know, and this is so cool, two weeks later, so that would have been like a, a, around December the 13th, say, just before Christmas break. Two weeks later, we're in Las Vegas. Me and my wife and my son and my daughter are in Las Vegas. And we, are, uh, we have tickets from Dana White, right? So we're sitting in the third row, which is so cool, right? And I'm, I, I, you know, guy sitting right in front of me is Mike Tyson. It's just like this really neat people watching event. And uh, Corey goes, Corey, my son goes, you see who's there? And I look three seats down. Guess who? CM Punk and his wife. So I think, okay, I got a choice now. You know, like what, what kind of guy am I? Am I the guy to, you know, hide behind the fact that he wouldn't even know what I look like, right? So uh, because the interview that we did was by satellite, right? And he wouldn't have had a return feed. So uh, I went up to him and I said, let's do it. So I took my daughter with me and I told my son to record it. So uh, I go over there and I said, hey, I just wanted to come over and say hi. And I could tell that he recognized me and he his eyes sort of narrow and he gives me this look. And I said, uh, I just want to say hi. Uh, and I introduced myself to his wife. Uh, I say, hey, I'm Michael Landsberg. And I interviewed your husband uh, not that long ago. And I just wanted to come over and say hi. And she goes, oh, oh that's nice. You coming over to say hi. Thank you so much. Because she has no idea what's going on until he says, basically, honey, this is the jackass that I, I told you about. And then she turns on me and it's like it's so frosty and cold in there. And I'm kind of loving it. Right. Because because he's pissed off and I'm not pissed off at all. I'm just having fun with the guy because there's something empowering about a famous person. Having you on their radar. So uh, it was really cool. I haven't seen him since, uh, but UFC didn't go so well for him. Amazing. I love the, the romantic after stories with all of your love-hate relationships uh, with uh, wrestling professionals. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, no, proportions. 
You know, I did, uh, you know, back in the early days of Off the Record, we had huge success with WWF then, then soon to be WWE, because TSN was a rights holder for Raw, um, the Monday Night Show. And I interviewed Vince McMahon in the fall of 2007, I guess. And Vince liked the fact that, you know, I challenged him, right? And I was really well researched because uh, a guy who was a friend of mine, Jeff Merrick, gave me, uh, he did a show called Live Audio Wrestling. So he knew everything inside, right? So he gave me these questions to ask Vince. Nothing to do with me. Like, I didn't go out and find that stuff. You never could. But he had, he knew everybody. And he got these questions that were so good. And Vince liked it. So he said, you can have anybody from my roster. So we got all, we got, you know, The Rock and we got Stone Cold. We got, you know, you you name, uh, you know, a big wrestler from that time, then you know, they had come on the show and they loved it, right? Because we took them seriously. Um, you know, we didn't, you know, it wasn't kind of the joke when the sports world tends to go into wrestling they tend to make it a joke. Uh, but we, we just interviewed human beings about their lives and about, you know, the things they liked and didn't like and their experiences. And that put us on the map. Be honest, during quarantine, how many Zoom meetings have you taken in your underwear? Oh, my God. Well, we did uh, we did Isolation Nation by Zoom. So there's 60 right there. We did uh, a lot of days. We did meetings uh, around noon before the show. So that's probably another 60. And, um, you know, so I'm going to say at least 150 Zoom chats, whether they're meetings or not. And how many in your underwear? Uh, I never, I have never done an interview in my underwear. Uh, I have, however, done an interview, um, with, um, well, the shorts I have on now, that's as low as I've gone. I've never gone underwear because, you know, there's other people around me too. You don't want to be the creepy guy where they go, oh my God, Lansford, he's in his underwear. I did fashion back in the day when I did sports center, I, I think I was the one to invent um, informality underneath a desk. So it would be, uh, we got a clothing allowance and instead of buying suits, I just bought tops, right? Cause you couldn't see what was below the waist. Why spend your money on it? Amazing. Michael. I'm a, I've been a huge fan for a long time. I was very nervous to, uh, to, to interview you, especially coming into your domain and asking you questions, but, um, a real pleasure. And thank you so much for, for sharing all that you did and for being vulnerable, um, talking about mental health and everything else. And there you have it. The first episode of season three of the Capitalize for Kids podcast in our conversation with Michael Landsberg. If you like this episode, please feel free to share, like, tweet the episode and support Capitalize for Kids. For more information on our organization and the work we do in children's mental health, please feel free to visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. Thanks and look forward to the next one.